This is Janine Sherman Berlois, and you're watching the TV Writer Podcast. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. My name is Gray Jones, and I want to welcome you to the TV Writer Podcast, partner of Script Magazine. Well, today I have the privilege of bringing you an interview with executive producer and writer Janine Sherman Berois. She is executive producer of Criminal Minds and has also worked on ER, Third Watch, and lots of other shows. You're going to absolutely love this interview, and we're going to get to it in just a minute. Um, I do want to remind you that there's lots of great resources at tvwriterpodcast.com. Make sure you do check out the website for back episodes. There's tons of free scripts that you can study. There's a Twitter database with over 900 writers that continues to climb. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter, at Gray Jones is my handle, and look me up on IMDb, imdb.me slash Gray Jones. You know, crowdfunding is getting a lot of buzz lately, and for good reason. Previous interviewee Ryan Koo raised $125,000 for his feature film, Manchild. Brandon David Cole, another interviewee, even got attention from J.J. Abrams and raised $111,000 to get his Snap Focus product off the ground. But the amazing thing about crowdfunding isn't just the money that it allows you to raise, it's often the reward levels. From a copy of a film on DVD to an actual credit on a film and on IMDb, there are a lot more rewards now than even five years ago, when investing in a film just meant handing over your $1,000 and getting really nothing back. Today I'm going to feature two crowdfunding projects that are worthy of your attention. The first is from TV Writer Chat co-founder Jamie Livingston, and the second is from veteran TV writer Zeke Kim, who is going to be on the podcast in a few months. Here we go. No One Knows is a short film about family, public perceptions, and secrets. What would you do to keep your secret? The Smiths could be any family. They could be your neighbors. When 12-year-old Jason looks in his neighbor's window, he learns he's not the only kid living in an abusive environment. What he learns will change his life. The script was written by Jamie Livingston, produced by Daniel Hoyos, and directed by award-winning director Booney Tomlinson. The cast and crew have teamed up with Child Help to spread the message about child abuse. Find out about the great reward levels at Indiegogo.com slash no one knows film. And for Zeke Cam's Kickstarter project, here's a video to explain. Hi, my name's Zeke. I've been a filmmaker for nearly 20 years. Nothing raises the production value of a film project like a quality jib or crane shot. Having access to a jib can turn an ordinary scene into something extraordinary. But existing jibs are large, heavy, expensive, and a hassle to set up. That's why I spent the last three years developing the Aviator Travel Jib. It's small enough to take anywhere, and it weighs less than a bottle of soda. Yet it extends from 25 inches to nearly six feet faster than you can tie your shoe. Thanks to the simple, clean design, it's extremely easy to use, and you can take it anywhere. It's perfect for action sports, Weddings, outdoor adventures, documentaries, commercials, real estate, corporate, indie films, and more. 
Made from T6061 aircraft grade mag alloy or stealth carbon fiber, the Aviator is ultra lightweight yet incredibly strong. The Aviator weighs under three and three quarter pounds and supports cameras up to six pounds. The telescoping sections use leg locks designed by world-renowned tripod makers, Three-Legged Thing. The included lockable fluid pan base means the Aviator works great on almost any photo or video tripod. There are bubble levels built into the base and head and we use radial bearings at all pivot points to ensure smooth, professional results. The kit comes with a jib, a high-end padded bag, accessory straps to hold your tripod to the bag, mounting hardware, an empty ballast bag so you can travel light and fill it once you reach your location, or use your own standard plate weights with the included knob. Thanks to our family, friends, and the awesome team at Three-Legged Thing, the dream of having an affordable, compact travel jib has finally come true. Watch the aviator take your image to new heights. Here we go. We're going to talk to Janine sherman Berwa, And like I said, you're going to love it. Enjoy. This is Gray, and I'm here with executive producer from Criminal Minds, writer Janine sherman Berwa. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing really, really great. Thanks. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Um, I know that uh, you've got a really great career behind you already, and it's going strong. And I, I, I'm sure everybody's going to love hearing how you got where you are and, and why you do what you do and all those kinds of things. Um, but uh, why don't we go way, way back to where did you grow up and go to university, and when did you get the writing bug? I grew up in Massachusetts, in Newton, Massachusetts. I moved to um, Reston, Virginia when I was in high school, and in Reston, I started to write for maybe the school newspaper. My brother was a writer for the school paper, and I sort of, he was a couple years older than me, and I decided to follow his lead. But I quickly kind of figured out that I didn't like telling the truth. <laughs> I sort of, <laughs> I like to make up stuff. Um, not that I made it up for the school paper, but I just sort of had a mind that led more to storytelling in like a narrative sense, not in a like journalist sense. Mm. And so I, you know, when I went to college, I went to college at Howard University in Washington, D.C. And my roommate just happened to be her father. When, I, when we met the first day, her father happened to be a big director. Um, he had done a bunch of law and orders and she was sort of on the same path. It was just sort of fate. Like we wow. did, you know, it was a random thing. And we became sort of inseparable, but our desire to both be in this business was huge. So I started probably at Howard thinking, like, let me work my way into screenwriting. And through her father, who was his name was Gilbert Moses, he sort of convinced me to get out of the school of communications, go to the liberal arts college so that I could be an English major because English majors read more hmm. and it's sort of a key component to being good storytellers the more you read the better you are and so that's sort of how I got started I I became an English major and I then um, minored in film in the school of communications and then I just started writing very, very cool and so you pretty quickly got out to the west coast and were part of the Warner Brothers writers workshop tell me about how that happened <laughs> I actually you know came out to LA. I, I had a bunch of different assistant jobs. I worked for some pretty prestigious writers. One guy was Ralph Barkbar, who 
was a big sitcom writer. I worked with Judd Apatow for about a couple of months, and then I got fired because oh, I no. can't <laughs> because I can't proof. Uh-huh. And uh, proofing does not mean whether you're a good writer or a bad writer. And I eventually got a job working for Damon Wayans. And while I was working for Damon Wayans, I partnered with another woman, and we decided to enter the Warner Brothers program. I think we had entered a few times before separately, but we thought maybe as a team we would do better together. Mm-hmm. And so we we entered and we got in. And that sort of opened the floodgates because once you get into the Warner Brothers program, it's sort of like a colander in the business. Mm. And it's a way that the studios get to kind of see who are the best new people in town. And we got an agent. It's funny, um, a guy named Jack Jaraputa, the producer for Adam Sandler. I was working on a movie that he was producing and he sent our stuff over to ICM and Richard White's returned our call and a bunch of other agents returned our call and we had a bunch of meetings and I remember when we walked out of ICM it was just we just started screaming (laughs) (laughs) we were meeting with you know such a big agency and so that's sort of what happened wow I mean I I can just picture that scene (laughs) so yeah I mean but the, the real key to all this is that you can't come to L.A. I made this sound like it happened really quickly, but it did take, you know, four years of sort of eating ramen noodles hmm. before before getting a entry-level break in the business. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, but from there, you got a start on Lush Life. And what is it? was this with your writing partner at that time? Yeah, it was with my writing partner at the time. We worked together on Lush Life. That was quickly canceled. And then Warner Brothers was really committed, and they're still committed to getting their people in the program on shows. So within two days, we got a job on Jimmy Fox. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, literally, I think it got canceled on Friday. By Tuesday of the following week, we were on a show. Wow. And so we did that for a couple of seasons. And while we were doing that show, one of the writers, Larry Wilmore, created a show called The PJs, which was a claymated show for Fox. Mm -hmm. And he asked us to work on it during our hiatus, and we did. And eventually we got hired on that show. And while we were working on that show, we wrote a movie that sort of got a lot of buzz in the business, a movie called Rescue Me. Mm -hmm. It never got made. I mean, nothing happened with it. But it got a lot of attention, and one of the people's attention it got was Andrew Stern at the John Wells Production Company. Mm-hmm. And at the time, John Wells had ER, he had The West Wing, and he had Third Watch on the Air. <laughs> and so, when it's sort of just like state, you know, yeah. um, if you were on the Warner Brothers lot at that time, John it was definitely the king, and you wanted to work for him. So mm-hmm. it was just one of the people that our agent sent it to. And he responded to it, Andrew, and Andrew had us meet with him, and we started developing a show with him. But we weren't at the level to really develop, hmm. and so it didn't go anywhere, but it was a good sample. But from that experience, we got offered Third Watch. Hmm. And we didn't really know about making the transition from comedy to drama, but ultimately um, it worked out. And for me, when when we went to go work on Third Watch, I really searched there. My partner really kind of felt like she wanted to stay in comedy. And so we had a, at the end of the first season, we had an amicable breakup. And mm. she went back to comedy where she did extremely well. 
And I stayed in drama because I sort of liked writing about life and death. Mm. And that's sort of where my career kind of started on its own. Well, tell me about that a little bit. I mean, of course, for, for the people watching the podcast, when you're writing team, you can be seen as just a team and you're not really, don't really have an identity of your own. Um, you actually stayed on that show for four more seasons. So how was that transition for you? I think initially when a lot of people partner up, they partner up because they think it's a marketing device. Mm -hmm. And then you start to work together and you realize that you each have your own voice. Mm. But the problem is, is that you are represented and you're sort of known as this entity together. And so a fear comes over you where you go, oh, I can't break up with this person. I mean, and I'm sure she felt the same with me. Like, she can't break up with me. And just pursue comedy because because our success was based on a unit together. Mm. And so I think when you start to write drama, the difference between comedy and drama is that when you're a team in comedy, the more people in the room, like the more jokes you were pitching, the more valuable you are. Mm. But when you're on the drama, there's not that comedy room. And so you really are just meeting three days a week and you're really getting hired for your sole point of view. Mm. And so you don't want to really debate your point of view with someone. Now, there are teams in this town who have the same point of view and they have a yin and yang that makes them work mm -hmm. successfully. But a lot of times you'll see teams break up just because they're growing as adults and they're growing in their voices and they're actually getting more confident to kind of say, you know, I actually will roll the dice to take a chance on my own voice mm. because I have something to say in a solo way. Yeah. So I think it was a hard transition initially because, you know, we used to split up work and then kind of rewrite it together so we could kind of do stuff faster. Mm -hmm. But now... There's been so much distance from our, our partnership that it ultimately was better for both of us. It was just, I mean, I think it's better for both of us. It's better for the world. It's just better because you have two strong voices in the world versus one voice compromising itself hmm. to become one voice. So people ask me all the time, should you team or not team? And I, and I go, you know, it's like being married. I mean, I think a, a lot of good teams don't tell you that they go to therapy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I, you know, from the, at the end of the day, I think it was a good experience for the beginning of my career, but my voice really flourished when I finally broke out on my own. Mm, well, that's great. Yeah, I, I know. I, I actually wrote as part of a, a writing team for a while, and, and the breakup was pretty hard. <laughs> <laughs> pretty hard yeah yeah um yeah so 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 but you were four more seasons on third watch so the, so um that must have been great the fact that you did have a a season together first and then being able to continue to write so you probably knew the show pretty well yeah i did i knew the show well i i for whatever reason you like ed Benera, who created the show with john wells i mean ed who was my day-to-day -day boss knew that while she gets the show she gets these cops and she knows how to weave these stories. And so I sort of became like the go-to person on the show. And I flourished. Mm. And and I probably, I don't remember at the end of the day, wrote, you know, maybe altogether 13 or 14 episodes. I'm not sure how many. But it was a good show to kind of get your chops on because it wasn't The Left Wing. It wasn't ER. It was this show that 
was like the little engine that could. It was sort mm. of the bad news bears. I mean, we were on this night, then we moved to this night, then we were on the other night, and <laughs> and 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 because that was happening, we were under the radar, but but able to produce a show that made you feel and made you feel like what it was like to be a cop or to be a paramedic or a firefighter in New York. Very very cool. And yeah. uh, so five seasons. I mean, that's that's. Nothing wrong with that, but um, yeah, you rose yeah. up to co-executive producer uh, in that show and then went on to ER uh, for the final four I seasons did. of the show and, and as executive producer. So tell me about that transition. Well, first of all, how, how you got the, got the job and, and how that happened. Third Watch was coming to an end, and I went out to lunch with John Wells, and we didn't really, actually, we didn't really know Third Watch was coming to an end. I thought I was going out to lunch with John Wells to sort of pitch to him what our next season would be, just hmm. in the event that we had to go on. And and there was rumor that Ed was going to be signing a deal on with another studio. And so I wanted to be in a position to take over the show. And I sort of was hoping to go to pitch to him ideas of my vision for the show. And... I did get to do that, but like midway through the conversation, he asked me, you know, what I thought about ER. <laughs> I'm like, eh, what, what? That's not where I thought this conversation was going. And I had clearly always been a fan of ER. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was definitely the Mercedes of um, NBC. It was the Mercedes of the Warner Brothers lot. And for somebody who had kind of come up on the Warner Brothers lot, it it was a show that I sort of watched from afar that everyone wanted to be on, but you never actually thought you'd ever get on. So you uh-huh. sort of got it out of your brain. Yeah. <laughs> and so he talked to me about it during lunch, and I raved about it. And then Andrew Stern sort of said something to me about it. And then I was made an offer and to go on as a Cody P. I had a little bit of reservations because... A lot of the people that had been on there had been on for years, hmm. and I didn't know, you know, it's hard to go into a club that's been going on for 11 years. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, so, so I wondered, you know, creatively, was it better for me to maybe risk going on a pilot and starting on a show fresh from the beginning? But I knew that this is kind of an opportunity of a lifetime, and yeah. so I, of course, I, I took it. Ed Bonero, was offered a deal, I think, at CBS or ABC Studios. He hadn't quite gotten Criminal Minds yet. Like, that had been shot as a pilot, but it was not an official job offer yet. Hmm. And so I had to kind of think about myself, and I I knew this was, like, a lifetime opportunity. And so I went as a co-EP, and and it was, you know, a very competitive experience. Um, David Zabel was running the room and running the show, and, you know, he was a tremendous boss, and... I learned a lot from that show because the thing that was different from ER than Third Watch was Third Watch had a lot of forced plot and drama because if you're doing a murder of the week or you're trying to figure out who started this fire or who killed this person, you have places to go. Mm. And in ER, you don't have anywhere to go but the ER. Mm. So you, you have to sort of find real humanist drama between the characters that are established, the regulars, and then find it with the characters that come in each week and do it in a frenetic pace that the show was accustomed to. So it it took me a minute to get up to speed, 
but I wouldn't take back that experience for anything. Wow. And, and you did four seasons of that. So, I mean, by the end of it, you, um, must have been, uh, I mean, uh, you, you must have really grown in your, in your producing ability and you ended up as executive producer of the show, right? Yeah. I ended up as one of the executive producers or one of the, okay. Yeah. One of the executive producers. I think there were three or four of us that had the executive producer credit and in a writing room, there's different levels of writers and, and you start off as a staff writer, you get a story editor, then you executive story editor, then co-producer, then producer, then supervising, then co-EP, then EP. And so when you get shows that are very successful, like ER, their budget could sort of afford to have upper-level writers on the mm. show. A lot of shows can only have one executive producer. But on a show like ER, they could afford to pay and have a a large pool of talent because they had the budget and the the profit margin to do so. Yeah. I, I've literally talked to writers who didn't want to be executive producers because they knew that there was a, a much smaller pool of jobs for the, the upper level. Yeah. I mean, there is. And, and that is, you know, <laughs> that is a very scary part about this business. I mean, I think a lot of people would agree with me. I think that the business is awesome. It's awesome to get promoted. It's awesome to get the money that comes with the promotion. Mm-hmm. But I think one thing, if, if writers could actually be guaranteed to make a certain amount of money writing until they were 65, and we all got a credit, I think people would be game for a system like that because there is so much instability. Mm-hmm. You know, there is so much instability and it is, you know, a pyramid. When you go up, it gets smaller and smaller and the opportunities get smaller. I mean, I look at this last staffing season and I have a lot of friends and colleagues, people that I've come up with, people that are really talented, that are at some of the great agencies in town and they didn't get staffed. And that's sort of because we're looking at a post-strike world. And in the TV game after the strike, you know, the staffs were reduced, the budgets were reduced, and consequently for the major networks and the, you know, premium cable networks, there are less jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and you can get six or eight junior writers for the cost of one EP. Exactly, exactly. And that is a, <laughs> that is definitely scary, scary, scary. Yeah. So. Well, but you did get another EP job after that, and that was on Criminal Minds. Tell me about that. I got offered, I actually, after ER, I went to, I developed for a year, and mm-hmm. when my pilot didn't go, I, I did something, I had a, a deal with Warner Brothers and something with Sony, and my, when my pilot at Warner Brothers didn't go, I was in Vancouver, actually, because my husband um, has been shooting up there working on, he's in visual effects, so mm-hmm. I go there a lot. And I got a call from Ed Venera. I was in the grocery store, and he said, what do you think about Criminal Minds? And this is sort of like the second or third time we've talked about me coming on the show. But before, mm-hmm. I had been on ER, and I said, ah, I wasn't really willing to quit ER to go on a Criminal Minds just because I wanted to have that experience, mm-hmm. not because I thought either one was better than the other. It's just I think you have to work for different people to build yourself as a writer. Mm-hmm. And so I got a call from him and he said, you know, are you interested in going on the show? And I said, I hadn't thought about it because I actually thought I was going to, I was offered another deal with Warner Brothers to develop again. And so I thought I was going to develop again because I really want to get a show on the air. And so I asked him if I could have the weekend to think about it. And I 
literally was taking the weekend to think about it. And one of my, my big agent, Richard White, so I'm, I'm not at WME, Richard White's left I am with W to Endeavor and then Endeavor is down WME. And so mm-hmm. I'm at WME and Richard White called me and he sort of talked to me and he said, I had been passing on some staffing opportunities on other shows because I really wanted to develop again. Mm-hmm. And so he said, I heard you got, are going to get offered Colonel Minds and are you thinking about passing on it? And I said, <laughs> I, I said, well, maybe because I really want to get a show on the air. And he said, that little town wants to get a show on the air. <laughs> he said, the way you get a show on the air is to continue to be valuable in the business. Mm. And this is a hit show. And these are people that you know, and these are people that love and adore your work. You know, Ed mm. has been a tremendous mentor to you, and you'd be going in a safe environment in which I, I knew other writers on the show, and um, he said you'd be going in a safe environment in which you could flourish. You like to write dark, edgy. The show's dark, edgy. It's about serial killers, and <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean. And he said yeah. uh, it's, it's sort of like a no-brainer, and they're picked up for 24 episodes. And I said. I know, but I really want to get a show on the air. He's like, everybody does. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I called Ed back, I think on Monday, and I told him, you know, I, I definitely was interested. And, and it wasn't that I needed to be convinced because I thought Criminal Minds was excellent. I just, mm. I want my own show. Yeah. So he asked me to fly back to LA to meet with the people at CBS and ABC Studios because it's a joint production mm-hmm. and to meet with the network. And I met with everyone and, and and this is a little insight information. Like, you know, I had ER and I had Third Watch and I had this background. But when I went into these meetings, people were still reading my original samples. Like, I wow. still, yeah, I still sort of had to audition for those. And I thought, I actually remember meeting at the network and I thought, oh, this is a joke. She has my samples on her desk, but she didn't really read them. Well, after the meeting, when I got home, she emailed me about the ending of my sample. Wow. <laughs> and I thought to myself, well, A, I was so impressed that she read my whole thing. But B, I thought it never stopped the auditioning. Wow. And so what did you give us as samples? I, I had a cop pilot, a Chicago cop pilot. Um, mm-hmm. It's called, at the time it was called The Good Guys, but then when they wanted up doing a show called The Good Guys, you changed it to um, the blue wall or the blue, mm-hmm. li- the blue line, I think. And um, so I gave a cop sample um, that's very, as you very dark. And it was something that I had written on spec and that producers, um, Jim Serpico and um, at Apostle, Dennis Leary's company, they had tried to set up, but it was a little too dark for network TV. Mm-hmm. And then I had a feature that was very dark and they were reading them. And, and that was a, an awakening for me because I had spent nine seasons being sort of sheltered working at John Wells's company. Mm-hmm. And so now kind of being out in the world with my credits, but still, you know, having to be approved, not by what I had written, not because I had written 20 something episodes on NBC, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but someone having to read my original work to say, hey, you could write on Criminal Minds, I thought was, I, I told all my friends this because I say we can never stop writing because the business always wants you to continue to feed the beast. Wow. So, well, and, and that's so. encouraging, though. It's it's encouraging to know that um, that people aren't just getting jobs because of their resumes. No, I, and I really, and I, and I say that because I... Also, it's interesting. I 
I go to Criminal Minds. I, I do. I go as a co-executive producer. I do really well, um, and I flourish, and I get promoted to an executive producer. And Erica Messer, who is the showrunner on the show, and I'm the number two. She literally, she and I read people for the following year, and when we read people, we read a lot of great writers. Mm-hmm. And we read their material. And they might have worked for David Mamet, they might have worked for Sean Ryan, but we literally read their new work and we read all of it. Because we needed to know that yeah, you might have written on X show, but could you write our show? Right. And we didn't want to hurt anybody's career by hiring them for a job that they said they could do, but their writing didn't prove they could do. And a lot of right. times when people say they can write dark, their version of dark isn't as dark as the show that you're on. And in Criminal Minds, people snooze on it, some people, but it's dark. <laughs> <laughs> it's dark, and it's twisted, and that's sort of what we needed. And, and so I was on the other side of it, you know, a year ago when we were hiring three writers, and we did. We read everybody. And so, so in a in a position like that, say you're writing, you're reading twenty samples, and you read something from you know a brand new writer, but who's who's got that edginess, who's got that that dark voice that you're looking for. Are you going to hire that person over somebody who's got fifteen years experience? Well, it depends. This is the thing. It depends on what level you're hiring. I mean. We happen to be hiring upper level. We had two lower level writers and we had a consultant. And so we needed upper level writers. And so in hiring upper level writers, that was the pool of talent we were reading from. Mm. And those writers consequently had experience. I will say that we read and met with about three or four lower-level writers that were pushed to us through different circumstances, some through the studio, some through another writer or director said, hey, I work with this person on this show, and they are so edgy, so dark and twisted. You know, another person, because they had a great serial killer feature, mm-hmm. they'd never written television, but they had a feature that was just killer. Mm-hmm. Um and so we met with a few of those people, but ultimately, because there was a lot of changes of the guard, um, Erica and I were both getting promoted to EP. She's been there for eight years, but we, we really needed to ensure that we had strong talent hmm. at the top. And so we wanted up hiring a lot of experienced people. But if you are hiring lower level people, I guess, the hardest thing is, like, how do you get your material into the hands of the person reading for a show? Hmm. And I will say that that can happen in a man, like, a number of ways. Sometimes it's through networking. Sometimes it's at a, you know, at a dinner party and you're at a dinner party and you go, yeah, I read on Criminal Minds. And someone says, oh my gosh, I just read the most twisted one act play you'll ever read. And if you're hiring that level, you're going to get enthusiastic to try to read mm. that person. So it depends. But there's a lot of hoops to jump through because when you are dealing with a show with a stature of criminal minds, you are dealing with a network in two studios that all sort of have to be involved in the 
process of hiring that person. But good material does rise. Mm. It just does. It eventually will rise. And so you've you've mentioned reading a feature, reading a pilot, reading um, a one-act play. I mean, does it matter what the material is? What do you read TV specs as well, or what what kind of material do you prefer to read? Well, I will say, like on this show, um, we made a deal that we did not read anything but original material. Mm-hmm. A spec of a Mad Men, you know, although Mad Men is you know clitoral clearly an amazing show or Boardwalk Empire does not necessarily say that you can write our show. Mm-hmm. And so we, because of the history of the show and because there was such a history of people, some people succeeding on the show, some people not succeeding, we felt it was imperative to read original work. And so the original work, Criminal Minds is told from two points of view, the show. It is the, there's a narrative with the, serial killer, mm-hmm. and then there's a narrative with the profilers profiling the behavior of the serial killer. And so the procedure, you can actually buy that if you were on cold case or you've written a cop show, you'll understand the procedure and we can help you figure out how to profile the case. Mm-hmm. But when we cut to the Hannibal Lecter story or the, you know, the story of the serial killer of the week, that is not done through the eyes of our heroes. That's done solely through your twisted vision. And that can take up, <laughs> you know, it can take up 30 pages of the script. Yeah. And so that we felt we needed to see in your own time with your own computer, with your own brain, with no network or studio or agent telling you what to write, how twisted do you actually go? Hmm. And, there are enough, and this is this is an interesting fact. There's a lot of people with twisted stuff. So if you know, like, you want to write dark stuff, you've got to have the sample to prove it. You can't just say, "I know how to write that." You've got to have it because other people have it. Mm. Very, very cool. Yeah, and another thing to add is that the best writers in town have everything in their arsenal, mm. and. They have, if you say I need a thriller, they, their agent has a thriller to send. If you say I need something a little bit more comedic, you know, family oriented, like a guest for housewives, they've got something for that. They actually, if, if you say I need something to show a mystery of the week, preferably medical, they have something for that. Hmm. And that's sort of what every writer has to aspire to have in their, you know, their body of work. They have to have the, enough work so that their agents or managers can get them in the door without someone saying, I, I don't want to read this. I actually want to read that. The, yeah. man, the manager or agent should always have something to say, hey, they have that actually. The inevitable, what else you got? I don't know. What else <laughs> you got? Yeah. What else do you got? You know, and the other thing that helps too is, you know, having people make calls to people. I mean, mm. I, I, would, I would never stress, do the work, do the work, do the work but also network and network and network because it just takes one person. Yeah. Very, very one cool. And, um, and so now you do have a feature set up at, at, with uh, John Wells Productions as well? I do. You know, it's, it's something that's sort of in limbo. I mean, it's something that I did a while ago, and it's, it's like the opposite of Criminal Minds. It was based on a British book called Tooth Company, and it was a book that Warner's Option and I wrote. And, you know, so now we're... You know, it's sort of sitting there like a lot of projects, uh-huh. <laughs> and, and you hope that they breathe life into stuff. And 
as a writer, like I'm working right now with a producer on a project and it's totally speculative, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's a big sort of thing that's more in line with my criminal minds work, but you know, you never know whether those things will happen. So all you got to do is just keep writing and feeding the bees. Yeah. Very, very cool. And, uh, uh, also, uh, tell me about this uh, nonprofit that you work with, um, the William H. Johnson Foundation. You know, it's funny, like, when you are in the business and you spend, you know, it's not a 40-hour-a-week job, it's an 80-hour-a-week job. You sometimes need other things to to inspire you artistically and just to give you a breather from the business. So, um, my husband and I are very big into contemporary art. We've been collectors for a long time and mm -hmm. we were involved in an organization called William H. Johnson and we give a scholarship a year where a foundation that gives not a scholarship, it's actually a prize to an African American contemporary artist that it's not an artist that has been shown at Starbucks or at your local coffee shop. They're actually the artists that have been at the big museums or had mm. big shows or, you know, won the Whitney Biennial they're, they're artists that are really on the verge or in the process of making a splash in the contemporary art world. And, mm. and so, so it's another passion that we have, um, along with the writing. And, you know, like I said, my husband's an animation director because when you are in this business, it's 24 seven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's 24 seven. And so I try to do other stuff. Like I'm in a running group. <laughs> I try to mm -hmm. do some stuff with the art because. When I'm not doing that, I seriously am. I, I'm writing, and that's the hardest part about this business is that when it gets hard, you still have to figure out how to put your butt in your seat and write. Mm -hmm. You know, so very very cool. So um, so we're getting towards the end of the time here, but um, okay. what we always end up with is is breaking in tips, and I know that you've talked about uh, a number of things already, like making sure that you have a broad portfolio of of stuff and that you're always keeping it current. Um, that you're networking as well as writing, but but what else? So if somebody, you know, lands in in LA and and says, "I want to break into TV writing," what should they do? Uh, you know, one of the first things I would do is I would get a job in the business. A, a lot of people think I don't have to work in the business, but the problem is is that if you're on a show, you actually, if, even if you're a PA and you're getting people coffee. Um, you're exposed to more scripts, you're exposed to more writers, and you're making more connections. So the first thing I would do is go to any of the temp agencies, look online. Deadline Hollywood has a job listing thing. I, I, if you can't get a job that pays as a PA job or a writer's assistant job, I would call up shows that you see in the paper or the, the Hollywood Reporter online, and I would call up every show and say, can you intern? Mm. And come in and intern, you know, for one day a week because eventually if someone sees that sort of spirit when the budget opens up in some department they will try to make a way to hire you the other thing i would do if you know that you want to write is i would get into a writing group mm. a lot of time you can get you can find out about them at local coffee shops you can type online you know writing groups in los angeles or new york or wherever you are vancouver wherever you're living you can find writing groups. The thing about a writing group that's so powerful is that it actually gets you over the wall of fear. And the mm. wall of fear is what keeps a lot of people from getting better because they don't want to hear the criticism. But the criticism is 
essential to the business. And every day, as as writers and as producers, I don't care how high you get, we're always getting beat down. We're always getting told it's not right, it's not good enough, it needs to be better. And that can be coming from other writers, that can be coming from the studio, it can be coming from the network. Mm. So the sooner you develop thicker skin, the better it will be. In a writing group, not only will you forge alliances with other people that want to do what you want to do, you'll also, you'll overcome it. You'll overcome the fear and then you'll learn to quickly kill your babies and, mm. and, and birth another baby. The other thing I do is I would really network. A lot of writers were all sort of reclusive. We like to be hermetic and mm-hmm. we like to sit at home. And I think sitting at home is great because I think you have to do the work. But I think there's another part of it where you have to live because living is actually going to make you have more experiences to draw from. It will make you a better person to observe in life Mm. because you'll observe more scenarios. But I think in LA, especially if you want to penetrate the system and get a big agent and get into one of the programs, whether it's Warner Brothers, Disney, CBS, Fox, any of these program, writers programs that are in town, I think you've got to, you've got to know more people. Mm. And, you know, Jennifer Grisanti, who used to be the executive CBS, she has a service. She has mixers once a, once a month. There's a woman named Cherie Guitar who runs a writing group. You know, she's amazing. There are people in town that are, are willing to help. And that's the last kind of thing that I'd say too is, You've got to move to L.A. if you want to be in a TV game. Mm. And a lot of times people, unless you're going to write in a market in Canada or you or you know somebody in New York on something, really, in order to increase your odds and increase your opportunities, you've got to move here. And, and how painful that might be because a lot of people don't want to move to L.A. Mm-hmm. It's just where it is. It's just where the business is centered. And then most importantly, you just have to write. And and I, I say this a lot because I've seen it happen, but a lot of people view writing like a, a knitting a scarf. They view it like, I'm going to just knit by the fire once a year. <laughs> <laughs> and you can't do that. Yeah. If you kind of view writing like that, you shouldn't do it because it's too competitive. It's sort of like saying, I want to be Kobe Bryant, but I'm not going to practice basketball. Like mm-hmm. You just actually have to do it every single day. And if you don't have the desire or the perseverance to do it every single day, then you shouldn't do it because part of this business is, yes, talent. Part of it is connections. But I think... One of the biggest parts, besides the chance element of just getting a break, is just stamina Mm. and being kicked in the face so many times that you still have enough strength and stamina to get back up. So I think that's the key. You just have to keep doing it. And, And a lot of people, it becomes hard. It becomes financially hard to do it. It becomes life gets in the way. Children get in the way. You get married. I mean, there's so many different things that get in the way. But I think that's fine, and if that's what happens in your life and it drives you on another course, that's okay. But don't forget that writers write, and you got to just write. Mm. Very cool. That's a great place to end up, and uh, you have been very, very generous with your time, and I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Deneen, and uh, wow, what what a great story, and uh, I'm so happy that you're you're not only doing well yourself, but you're giving back as well, which is really, really cool. 
Great. Thanks a lot. This was an amazing interview. Thanks a lot. I can usually tell the difference between when somebody's using a, an effect in Photoshop and actually using a lens that creates blur or creates focus effects. So aesthetically, I think it's more pleasing to create it from a lens. And also creating it on site in camera, um, it just it has a way of clarifying your vision and making the images stronger, I think, because you're creating exactly what you want at the time on site. So I like the Lens Baby products because they're, they're different and you get to play with blur and focus in different ways that you, you can't with other types of lenses. I've enjoyed that a lot and I enjoy the range of different optics that they provide because you can do so many different things with them and create different looks, have control over blur and focus in different ways. And these new lenses that are coming out I think are really exciting because they expand the potential for photographers and the arsenal that we have to work with to create the images that we dream of and want to make reality. I really love working with focus and being able to tilt and shift focus and the ability that gives me as part of my visual language to focus the, the viewer's attention on particular areas in an image. I also like the fact that I can control the blur and control what's out of focus and I think blur and things out of focus are oftentimes just as beautiful as things that are in focus. So those are um, reasons that I use different lenses like lens babies or a tilt shift lens or a view camera for different series that I work on. I'm really excited about the Edge 80. I've been asking for this lens for a long time from Lens Baby because it's a way for me to work with a digital camera and create effects that I could only previously create with a 4x5 or a lens of that sort on bigger cameras. We can create two different looks with the Edge 80. We can use it like a normal lens and just focus it parallel to the digital sensor, or we can tilt it and use that slice of focus within the image to uh, create blur or create focus on particular areas in the image. With a tiltable lens, we can tilt the lens around, and so our focus plane also becomes tilted at an angle. And so that allows us to focus our attention on particular areas in the image, say, for instance, on the eyes or a piece of jewelry. Um, it also allows us to create blur and create really beautiful effects with blur that we couldn't if we were working uh, with a straight parallel lens. With the Edge 80 we have three controls for how we can control the focus. So first we can tilt the lens and shift that um, plane of focus at an angle. The second control we have is working with our aperture by adjusting the aperture to say f22, we'll have a much deeper depth of field at that angle or opening it wide to 2.8, we have a really shallow depth of field, a really beautiful blur coming off the edges of that focus plane. And then we can focus the focus ring and move that plane of focus in and out, or forward and backward within the image as well. When you're working with a tilt and shift lens, you have to be real careful about how you meter things and how you expose your image. Because as you tilt the lens, the meter in the camera doesn't read the, the light properly anymore. So I'll frequently shoot and then I'll check my histogram on my image in my LCD screen to be sure I have the proper exposure and then I'll shoot some more and test it again. It's also really important that you bracket your exposure and I also like to bracket my focus because it's sometimes it looks like something's in focus and you're just slightly out of focus. 
Alright, we're turning around to your right a little bit. Using selective focus is a lot of fun and it gives us a lot more creative freedom in how we, we focus an image or blur out particular things or focus the viewer's attention on particular parts of the scene or the clothing or the jewelry or the accessories or the face. I like Lens Baby's products because they expand the, the possibilities for my imagery. So I have more tools to work with to create more interesting images and to create something a little different. I think the images speak for themselves. Hosted by Gray Jones, the TV Writer Podcast is brought to you by Script Magazine and ScriptMag.com, the leading source for script writing information in print and on the web. <laughs>